You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, this is the second of four parts on the gospel and literature. I'm going to review a little bit of what I did last time when I talked about Oedipus Rex and the book of Job. And today I'm looking at Shakespeare, not all of Shakespeare, but just two plays, and I'm not going to be able to do them very much justice as it is. In fact, if I you know, don't finish the discussion, I may roll it over to next week, but I'm going to talk a little bit about King Lear and the Gospel, and then a comedy called As You Like It, which is not as well known as King Lear, but an incredibly great play. Next week I'm going to talk about what I think is uh, arguably the best Christian fiction in the world. Uh, there are some that are very close to it, but this one, in my opinion, stands at the very top, and that's uh, Brothers Karamazov by the Russian author Fedor Dostoevsky. And then the last Sunday I'm going to talk about, which uh, is also very, very high on that list of great Christian fiction, is Les Miserables, which is a fantastic story. I mean, it's, the book is about this thick, so obviously I'm not going to be able to justice that. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about Flannery O'Connor, some of her stuff as Christian literature and how they depict the gospel. But first of all, to review a little of what I did last time, um, uh, literature is a gifted art form because it is able to depict serious issues and sometimes very erudite issues, sometimes very practical, sometimes very emotional and existential issues in real life terms, the way you and I live. And that's why literature is an enduring art and it will always be with us because we're always telling stories on how to understand ourselves, our own situation. And some of those stories that are told are, I think, helpful, illuminating, encouraging for the Christian life because they tell us something about what is the struggle, what are the tensions, what are the issues that we deal with as Christians living in the world that we do. And last time I looked at Oedipus Rex, which is a magnificent piece, arguably one of the best, best tragedies in the world, and then the book of Job. Uh, but just to review a little bit about this, I probably didn't make this point that clear. There is, there is a significant difference between Oedipus Rex and the book of Job. As good as Oedipus Rex is, it is a thoroughgoing tragedy. There is no hope at the end for Oedipus. There is not. And so uh, Sophocles depicts the kind of um, despair, darkness, nihilism of life itself. Even a good person doing the right things ends up doing unbelievably horrible things like incest and patricide, let me patricide, uh, and ends up blinding himself and wanders away. All right, in a way, that is life. But Job, who is equally tragic in some ways, what Job loses is, is unimaginable what he goes through. And the ordeal within that long, rigorous, arduous, argument of the book is that in the end, Job finally finds something that answers his, his questions. It's not a direct answer, but it's a more profound answer because the question, and I think this is really one of the great insights of the book of Job, the questions that we ask about why do these things happen to us is not big enough. Those questions are great. They're the only ones we can ask, but they're not comprehensive enough. They're not probing enough. And God gives an answer to Job that does indeed answer his quest. And so at the end, you know, he says, I repent in dust and ashes, because God showed him the mystery of creation itself. Well, there's a difference, though. Uh, the Christian view 
understands the suffering of the world just as clearly as any other view. Our concepts, based upon the gospel of Christ, who dies on the cross for the sins and shame of the world, is as realistic about the human depravity as any, any viewpoint it is. But it doesn't end with that. In some ways, I would argue that the Christian view of life, of human history, human destiny, is a drama, not a tragedy. God is involved in human history to redeem it. In the end, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a kingdom of God in which there will be no more tears, no more darkness. And this is what Job experienced there in that great sort of mystical insight that he came with. God, it's a drama. We live in a dramatic history, a world in which there's tremendous conflicts. And many of us suffer these conflicts and nations suffer these conflicts. But that's not the end of it. That God is involved in history to redeem it. All right, and so we look at history this way, that it's a drama from a Christian point of view. Literature gives us insight, I think, on how to see that. How do we handle these kinds of onslaughts, these great erosions that go on in the human heart and human soul and in human communities? Literature helps us to do that. All right, uh, I didn't talk about this last time. I should have. I'm going to spend just a moment on this. Art and catharsis, if you know much about what that word means, it really starts there with a great Greek philosopher named Aristotle. He writes a book called Poetics, which is, I think, one of the most insightful analyses of, of really what constitutes art. But he says one of the reasons that we are drawn to tragedies, and Aristotle has in mind Oedipus Rex, in fact, he mentions Sophocles in the Poetics, is that it induces in us a catharsis. That these great plays, these great fictional pieces, the literature that we take a look at here, draws us into the development of the characters and the plot. And when it finally comes to the end, what he calls, we have a catharsis. We have an insight that comes through, in fact, the word sort of comes from purging. There's a purging experience that comes through these great pieces. That as we begin to understand something, that we didn't properly understand prior to. We knew what the tension was, what the problem was, but because I've identified with Oedipus, or I've identified with Job, and today I'm going to ask you to identify with King Lear, which is a little risky to do, we learn something about ourselves. We better understand our place in the world. We better understand the kind of problems that we're facing and what possible solutions can come from. And that's a catharsis, great literature, purges us. It draws us into its plot and characters, and we come to a better understanding of ourselves and life itself because of that. And that's one of the great benefits in studying all this. All right, I'm going to pass over what I did last time. These are some slides here. And now I want to talk about King Lear. Uh, Shakespeare probably wrote this around somewhere in between 1603 and 1606. It is a grueling, grueling play to read, uh, to watch, and I've actually had the great privilege of acting in it and almost had a nervous breakdown <laughs> after it was over. We did four nights in a row, and it demanded a tremendous amount of the emotional input to do justice to the great play. Here are some of the more famous people who have played King Lear. The one up in the upper left is Paul Schofield, uh, 1971. It is the bleakest rendition of King Lear I've ever seen, black and white, but it's done in this kind of surrealistic, absurd theater kind of approach. And the overall import, Im uh, impression 
that that uh, that show does is is just at the end there's nothing like Oedipus Rex there's just despair the one on the far right which I have not seen maybe some of you had uh, it's Glenda Jackson a woman here playing King James I mean uh, King Lear and I've heard great things about her her role in this and I would like to see it one day on the bottom left is Anthony Hopkins 2018 I've seen parts of it and I thought it was magnificent in the middle is Orson Welles. Orson Welles did that one in 1956. Uh, I've seen just portions of it, and I thought it was magnificent. He's a powerful voice, powerful character. But my favorite, the one that I've seen the most and have learned the most from, is one on the bottom right there, but that's by Ian Holmes in 1998. He's magnificent himself. He, he did it on stage. I'm, I'm, I want to say National Theater, but that's not quite right. Maybe it was the old or something in London for a number of years and then they made a video out of it and I've only seen the video of it and one of the reasons I loved that presentation of King Lear is that the fool played guy named, by a man named Finbar Lynch is magnificent the fool is a very tricky character in King Lear as they all are in, in Shakespeare's play and it can be overly done it can be kind of silly and ridiculous looking but his is a very compelling presentation of of the fool. So if you ever really want to pick one out, that's my favorite. They're all great, but that one is my favorite. All right, let me tell you the story. Uh, Lear is a king near retirement age, old, and as he says, old and wretched, full of grief and age. Uh, he is uh, vain, he's arrogant, he's bossy, he's a bully, and he decides against nature, because nature has you leave the inheritance to the older because it gives continuity and stability when one person inherits everything. That, he's going to divide his kingdom up among his three daughters, Gonorrhea, Regan, and Cordelia. Cordelia is his favorite. The word Cordelia is from heart. They truly have a heart-to-heart -heart relationship, far more than what he has with the other two older daughters. And he calls them all in there, and he's going to divide up the kingdom, and he will give portions of it uh, relative to the amount of flattery that each of the daughters give him at that setting. So as, if you will flatter me the most, I'll give you the most of the kingdom. And so Goneril and Regan go around and they basically tell lies. They despise him. And uh, they're trying to build up his ego and he's all puffed up. And when it comes to Cordelia, his favorite, she refuses to play the game. And she said, I just love you as I am. And it infuriates him. He goes raging in anger and he banishes her. He says one of the worst things a parent could ever say to a child. Better thou hast not been born than not to have pleased to me better. Well, Kent, uh, who is his kind of secretary of state, defends her and he gets all wrathful about Kent and banishes him too. Well, he sets up an arrangement with Goner and Regan that he and his entourage of kind of old bunch of party-going ex-military guys will stay in each one of their palaces at various lengths of time. And uh, it, it moves into that where he actually does. And there are a bunch of rowdy ruffians and you know, drinking all the wine out of the basement and so on. And so the daughters are just incensed with this. And they, are, they have a huge confrontation with him. And he gets all just out of bent, thinking that the whole world and God now is turning against him because of these daughters that he had given so much to. 
uh, is, is rejecting him and wanting to kick him out of the house, and he leaves. And in this, in his exit from their houses, is one of the most, my, my, my opinion, most uh, compelling and intense scenes in all of literature, and that's what these two scenes up here depict. When he is out in the storm, out of the heath, there's lightning bolts, and he you know, screams out, blow wind and crack your cheeks, rage blow you cataracts and hurricanes. And he is challenging God at this point. And Kent is with him, and the fool is with him as well. This starts basically the mental unraveling of King Lear. And he begins to wander around out in the, the, the forest, the woods, the heath, the desolate areas. While he was doing that, a very, very insidious plot begins. <clears throat> Gloucester was his also right-hand man along with Kent. And Gloucester had one legitimate son named Edgar, a favorite son. But he also had an illegitimate son named Edmund. Edmund was incredibly jealous and envious of Edgar. And Edmund starts a plot to kill Edgar. Edgar flees, knowing this plot is unfolding. And he also runs out into the wilderness. And he changes his name, he disguises himself, and he acts like a crazy person called Poor Tom. Edmund, though, wanting still to take the kingdom, he starts to connive with Goneril and Regan, plotting against each other to the point where they begin to war with one another and before long, a civil war breaks out. In this, Gloucester is on the run because they know they're out to kill him as well. And Regan eventually captures Gloucester, and this is also one of the most dramatic scenes, I think, in any of Shakespeare's plays. They capture him, bind him up, and Regan, with her hands, pulls his eyes out. And so he is now blind, and he is wandering around. By this time, Lear has actually lost all connection with reality. And he stumbles in uh, to, to uh, 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 Gloucester there, and they have this kind of uh, irrational, uh, bizarre conversation between them. And uh, Lear has one of these great sermons that, frankly, I think is found in all the Shakespeare's learn that you know when we cry, when we come into this world, we cry because we have come into a stage of fools. And he runs off in madness. Well, the plot begins to thicken more in this civil war, and the next time we find Lear, he is unconscious. And he is in a room being nursed by a doctor and by Cordelia. Cordelia has come back from France where he banishes her. And Lear, when he finally comes to, recognizes that it's Cordelia. And this is one of the most affectionate scenes, definitely in the play, in which he says, you know, uh, I think I know who you are. Uh, your, your sisters have done me wrong, but I have done you the wrong, he says to Cordelia. And she says something that I think sometimes is glossed over, too quickly ignored, that Shakespeare, I think, puts it right at this point from her lips, and I think he does it for a very, very significant reason. And she says, no cause, no cause. He, she has every right in the world to hate him and to lead the revolt just like Goneril and Regan are doing. She has every justification to despise what her father had done. 
But he get, she forgave him. She didn't ask for comeuppance. She just wiped the slate clean. No cause, no cause. And they embrace and they walk off. The next scene in which we find Lear is that Edmund has both of them arrested. And uh, there is a powerful dialogue between Lear and Cordelia at this point in which he talks about how they will go off into prison and, and, and find a way to flourish. And Lear says to Cordelia, and we will take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. Well, the guards take them off to prison. And during this time, the rivalry between Goneril and Regan is so intense, they actually end up killing each other. They both are dead there on the stage. Lear then at this time comes in carrying Cordelia. How, 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 oh you men of stones. And she's dead. And he lays her down there on the floor. And he says one of the most poignantly painful things any parent could say about their child. Why does a dog, a horse, a rat have life but thou no breath no more? Thou shalt come no more. And he buys of a broken heart and, and collapses there on the stage. And that's the end of the play. That's what happens to King Lear. Now, why am I saying that there's something to be learned about this as a Christian? Why am I arguing that some way or another this great, great tragedy here, this great play, uh, can teach us something about the gospel? There's several lines that I want to, to pay attention to uh, in King Lear. Hold on one second. That I think will help us to experience a proper, remember this word, catharsis. Even though the play itself mentions nothing about Christianity, in fact, it's a pre-Christian story, it's a pagan story. One of the well, I think one of the more resourceful things that Shakespeare ever did. He, he found old stories and built upon them. In fact, I am no scholar in Shakespeare. I'm just a lover of Shakespeare. But I think probably the one play that has more Christian references than any other play in Shakespeare's repertoire is Hamlet. I mean, he is a, you know, a prince of a Christian nation, so there are a lot more references, overtly references to, overt references to Christianity in Hamlet than any other. There may be, but that's as much as my knowledge goes. But he says this. All right. He is out in the heath, wandering around with the fool, with Kent, and uh, they are wanting to go into a hovel, and the, it is still raining, and uh, he is all enraged about how everything is just broken around him. And he has not quite yet seen that it is his own tragic flaw that has brought this up. And he says this, Let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter o'er men's heads find out their enemies now. Tremble, thou wretch, that house within these undivulged crimes, unwhipped of justice, hide thee. Thou bloody hand, thou perjured, and thou similar virtue, that art insatuous. Caitiff, two pieces shake, that under covert and convenient seeming hath practice on man's life. Close pent-up guilts, rise your concealing countenance, and cry these dreadful summoner's grace. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Lear here is still self-absorbed, self-centered, 
arrogant, refusing to see that his own kind of bullying and pride is what brought these kind of calamities on, not just himself, but his daughters and the whole nation now that he has put in to uh, civil war. Just a few, I don't know, hours after this, they are still out in the heath, the rain has stopped, Kent and the fool are there in this little shack, and Lear says this, I think this represents a transition in how he understands himself. Nay, get the end, I'll pray, and then I'll sleep. So there he is, he's praying up to God. Poor naked wretches, wherever so you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I've taken too little care of this. Take physic, pump. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. He's no longer self-absorbed. He's no longer looking at all of this as just an unjust, unfair calamity that has fallen on him. He now realizes that he had not done enough to help the wretches of the world, those without a roof, without food. And so this represents a transition. He cries out to God, show thyself, God, come down and help the people of this world. And so I think this represents a, a significant transition in Lear, where he begins to identify with the wretches of the world. Now, uh, Shakespeare is always very hard to interpret, and that's one of the reasons why he is so enduring. He is so good at leaving us guessing what he is really trying to say. I mean, and in some ways, life is that way. I mean, it's hard to even understand ourselves, more or less, other people. Life is complicated. We're, you know, if we're not living in another person's shoes, it's hard to understand what they do and why they do it. Shakespeare is the same way, and that's one reason why he is a genius, in my opinion. His depiction of life is accurate. It's bizarre at times, it's extravagant, it's extreme, but nonetheless, it is insightful. Uh, when I was in King Lear, uh, the director, who was an incredibly gifted person, and I, I would have jumped off a cliff if she had told me to because I thought she was so good, but she and I differed on how to interpret the play. I mean, I did what she told me. Uh, uh, she saw the play as utterly nihilistic. Uh, it ends just like Oedipus Rex, just darkness. However, though, I thought throughout the play, and especially there at the end, there's a transformation going on in Lear. Something changes. He has seen the end result of his own life, of his own conniving, his own arrogance. And he realizes that he has to change. And so he wants to identify here with the wretches of the world. So I think there is some sense of courage, of, of honesty, almost of confession that's going on in Lear's life. To the point where at the end, Though he is so overwhelmed by the death of Cordelia, not necessarily by the deaths of Goneril and Regan, but by the death of Cordelia, the one that he had banished at one time, better thou hast not been born than not to have pleased me better. Now he wants her back. Why does a dog or rat have life, but thou no breath at all? And so he has had this transformation, I think, and he has understood the faults 
the errors, the mistakes that he has created, and the great harm that follows from those sorts of things. And so what he learns here, I think, is something quite powerful. Um, well, I've already read, I've already quoted those pieces. That's all I wanted to quote from Lear. But, like I said, I do think there is a profound catharsis that goes on in, in really giving yourself to this great play. And really, great art asks us to give ourselves of it. Not just to speculate, but to participate in what's going on. See yourself as part of this plot and this character development. And I think by, by seeing this play, of course, none of you are going to be as bad as Lear, Lord willing. None of us are going to be as bullying and as arrogant and as supercilious and insensitive as Lear. But all of us, every one of us in our own way, realizes that sometimes I think I'm doing the right thing. That even though my motives may be right, and I'm committed to make all this work right, but sometimes I create more harm in what I thought I was doing right than not. That what follows my good actions sometimes undermine the very goodness of the intentions. That sometimes we put in force, put in place in our own lives and other people's lives, forces, memories, inclinations, pain, suffering in other people's lives, in which we weren't necessarily being malicious or cruel or sadistic, but just life itself can be so complicated and intricate that we cannot control everything that we do, that we create ripples and consequences in our life, and we look at those and they're just creating mayhem in other people's lives. We didn't plan that. We didn't want that. I didn't design this to harm my children. I didn't want this to hurt my family or to hurt my students or my neighbors. I, I didn't want any of this. But I have to face that, that I have done something like that. Exactly what Lear did. I think Lear was a fool. I think Lear was a tyrant. And in some ways we see that he reaped what he sowed. However, though, I do think, the least the way I interpret Lear, contrary to the director and the play, that he does show us something. There is the possibility of transformation even in the recognition of our own mistakes and even our own hidden depravity, our own sort of suppressed problems that do influence most everything that we do in some way or another, sometimes quite directly in anger, sometimes very indirectly in how we treat people. But nonetheless, those kind of suppressed problems that we all struggle with can influence the way we act towards others and the consequences of our own action. But I think what King Lear tells us, there is a place here for confession, for redemption. There's a place here to recognize that at last, there's something bigger than ourselves. There's a story going on that we're part of. One of the most poignant um, and, and tearful parts of the play there is at the very end. I'm going to read it. Lear is looking at Cordelia. I've already quoted some of this. Uh, and my poor fool is hanged. Now there's some real debate about what he means by fool there. Was it the literal fool? Probably not, because we don't hear anything about the fool about halfway through it. 
uh, is Cordelia the fool. Most people think that's what he's referring to. The word fool in the 17th century probably meant something different than what we think of it. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? But thou no breath at all. Thou shalt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you, undo this button. Thank you, sir. And here are the, the tearful lines that perhaps every parent, and, and, and God forbid that these things happen to us. It may have happened to some of you, and I apologize if this is a very tender, sensitive subject, to witness the death of a child. He is looking at her, and he says, Do you see this? Look on her. Look, her lips. Look there. Look there. And he faints and dies. He doesn't give up. He doesn't fall into despair. He doesn't say life is utterly meaningless. He still holds on to his love for Cordelia. And I think this is the Christian story. That is, as, as, as bleak and as despairing and as dark as the cross is, it is a sign upwards. Look there, look there. Even in the midst of misery, I think we can still say, look there, look there. And so what I'm arguing here is by following Lear through this great, great story here, we learn something about human courage within a world of mistakes that we bring on to ourselves. All right, I could say more about this. It is a powerful, powerful show. Yeah. Yes? Just one quick thing. Did your director want you to look up, or was that maybe where you all had a... We had a little difference of opinion on that. We did. I smuggled in some things, and I got my knuckles wrapped a couple of times. <laughs> what the? <laughs> yes. What uh, part did you play in the six? I played King Lear. You played King. Yeah. Lear. Took me two years to memorize 660 lines. But that's the easy part. That's the easy part. Memorizing lines is the easy part in acting. Finding the character is always hard, and he was he was a demanding thing. I mean, I had to I had to be crazy. In fact, I played the crazy parts better than I did the sane parts, which says something, I guess. Okay, let's switch gears. I, I, well, I don't think I understand your reference to courage. I mean, like if, it's clear he's arrogant, but he's self-conceited and self-centered, and then he falls into madness. By the end. And I haven't read King Lear in a really long time, so you're going to be able to tell us. But I mean, isn't it more just, I feel like it's less courage and more uh, resignation or like a recognition of like weakness or, you know, the type of like humility before the cross that I, I think everybody identifies with right. here. But I mean, is that courage? Well, the reason why I call it courage is they're out in the heath when he is praying you know, poor naked wretches, and he asked God to shake the superflux, which refers to the bounties of heaven, upon these upon the earth. I think he makes a transition that is not his nature. I think he's willing to face it, that what he had done was horrible. He not only hurt himself, he led to, he ultimately will lead to the death of his two daughters, I mean his three, three daughters in a civil war. And he is finally coming to admit this, that I have brought great home, you know, too little, I mean, I have Pay too little attention to these things. I think that's the courage of confession. Are we willing to admit that what we are, what we sort of design ourselves to be, how I kind of 
describe myself is wrong. Am I willing to do that? And it takes great, great, I think, psychological courage to be able to make that. So that's why I give you as an example. But I admit, Shakespeare is not real direct. He always holds his cards close to his chest. And this is my interpretation of all this. And that's why I think I'm going to treat this as, as a text that can tell Christians on how to live a meaningful Christian life. Now the next one is a wonderful play. It's a comedy, as you like it. Um, I've seen it. I, I actually acted in it, uh, even though we had to cancel the play because of the pandemic, so we never got it on stage. And I learned a lot about it. Uh, it is one of these wonderful, delightful plays that Shakespeare writes that calls a comedy. Now, there are a couple ways in which we can define a comedy. I've got about six or seven minutes. If I don't finish this about as you like it, I'm going to roll it over to next Sunday, and then we'll move into the Brothers Karamazov. But a comedy, you know, uh, you know some people will, will define a tragedy as when bad things happen to good people. That's sort of a a circumstantial definition of it. There's a more profound psychological definition of a tragedy, and this is what we see in King Lear, is that when unknown human faults in the heart create undesired but disastrous consequences, and we have to live the consequences of our unintended actions. That's tragedy. In some ways, all people are tragic. Each of us has a flaw, not necessarily like Lear's, but we have a flaw. Human history has a profound flaw. We don't have to argue very long about what nations end up doing. But a comedy, though, is a little different. Some people argue that it's, um, it's when good things happen unaware to ordinary people. Not necessarily to bad people. Bad people don't deserve it. But uh, comedy has a positive note because good things happen at the end. I, but I think there's sort of a more profound notion of it that a true comedy is when people realize that the blessings that are given to us are done by, out of grace, undeserved. It is a sort of a, a beautiful experience that I really could not have procured by my own wit or hands, but life has given me a blessing and it's done by grace. This is such a story. Okay, here's the plot. It, it's really kind of a simple story. There's nothing really all that profound about the plot. Uh, this is a... Uh, to me, the, the most interesting female character in all of Shakespeare's plays, Rosalind on the right, and Celia, or C-E-L-I-A, Celia. Uh, Rosalind is the daughter of a deposed duke named the Duke Senior, who has fled because the other duke, Duke Frederick, who is the father of Celia, uh, has banished him. And so they are at odds with one another, and their two daughters become best of friends. Okay, there are two brothers, uh, who, and, and one of them becomes one of the central figures, uh, central people uh, in the whole play. There are two brothers, Orlando and, uh, hold on one second, uh, Oliver. Orlando is the younger of the two. Oliver has sort of irrigated all the privileges and positions of the home to himself and did not allow Orlando, the younger brother, to have good access to education and training and so on. And so there's a real you know, Cain and Abel rivalry here between Oliver and Orlando. And they come to a quarrel and they leave and Orlando leaves. 
Oliver basically banishes him out. Okay, the Duke Senior has been banished out by the Duke Frederick, and Orlando, the younger of the two, is banished out by the older Oliver. Well, Orlando takes with him the house servant named Adam. In, in all of, of Shakespeare's writings, pay attention to the secondary actors. Sometimes they carry the plot in their sort of brief roles. And in my opinion, I think Adam carries the plot, one, of, one aspect of the plot in this magnificent story. So Orlando and Adam leave. Well, Rosalind, though, is also now banished out of the court of Frederick. Remember, Frederick is the father of Cecilia, I mean Celia, and she, hiding, uh, disguises herself as a man named Ganymede. So she's dressed like a man. And she sees Orlando and instantly falls in love with him. And knowing, though, that she could not reveal herself as the true woman that she is, Rosalind, she starts some of the most clever, some of the most intelligent, insightful sort of maneuvering of things around so that they can eventually become romantic with one another. And really, in some ways, her wit alone moves the plot. Well, Adam, though, all along is helping Orlando to go someplace. Rosalind and Celia, Celia leaves with Rosalind, she knows the disguise that Rosalind are also going someplace, and where they're going is where the Duke Senior is. And where the Duke Senior is in the play is a very interesting, fanciful obviously, forest named Arden, A-R-D-E-N, in the forest of Arden. It is said of the forest of Arden that all relationships are healed. Everybody is peaceful with one another. And there's sort of tranquility that can exist in human relationships there in Arden. So Orlando and Adam are trying to go to such places. And Rosalind, disguised as Ganymede, is helping, coaching them along to finally get to this Arden. Along the way, there are a number of other people who sort of fall in love with one another. They quarrel, they fuss, they have misunderstandings, but all along they're on a journey. And they're on a journey here to the forest of Arden. And when they get to the forest of Arden, sort of instantly, all the disguises, subterfuge, misunderstandings, fussiness, quarrels, are gone. And there's a mass wedding there at the end, conducted by the, the god Hymen. He has this mass wedding here. They're all getting married. And, all, and, and the two dukes are reconciled with one another. And in the end, there's sort of happiness, all because of this sort of interesting, powerful, influential, mystical garden, I mean, forest of Arden. Okay, that's it. That's the story. Uh, there's some great lines in there. In fact, take, oh, I've got to go. I've got one minute. But when I come back next week, I want to finish this little discussion. Okay, to me, the significance of this, and the reason why this has something to say to us as, as Christians, as people who have been shaped by the gospel, is that life is sort of a pilgrimage. We are, we are asked to identify with these people. You know, they come from conflicts. The two dukes, the two brothers, the, the, the two best of friends now with their fathers. The world in which they live is filled with, with not just tension, but acrimony, with, with, with hostilities. But they go on a journey. And all along it is Adam who is sort of guiding Orlando because of his own sincerity and his absolute honesty and humbleness. 
That he is sort of, as, as Orlando says, of, he is one of these people uh, like an antique of old. Adam, first man. I don't think Shakespeare was just being sort of casual and giving this character, this rather unassuming servant, the name of the first person, uh, how we're supposed to be with one another, kind. We're supposed to be kind with one another, just as Adam is kind to Orlando. That kindness gets them there to the Forest of Arden. And there at the Forest of Arden, we find a power enabling these people to overcome their differences and to be reconciled. I would say one of the, one of the great aspects of the Christian drama is just like in Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that great story, people move through conflicts and we come to a realm in which we are healed, not because of our own efforts, our own intelligence, our own wit, but because of a blessing, a grace that is given to us. And so I think that's sort of the catharsis that we can have with this comedy, as you like it. Uh, I, I, here's Adam. I didn't follow him. Here's the Forest of Arden, this sort of mystical place. And then there's that big wedding that happens at the end. And you know, in the Gospels, uh, the parables describe the kingdom, the reign of God, the final destination of humanity as what often? Not all the time, but often it's described as what? A wedding. A banquet. It's a banquet. That God throws us a banquet. And I think this is what Shakespeare is depicting. I don't know if he had any Christian motive behind this at all. I don't know. I'm just saying as a reader and interpreter, as a spectator of this great play, it draws us into this kind of wonderful plot of moving into a blessing. And I think that helps us understand that even more as Christians. All right, when we come back next week, if you're here with me, I'm going to pick this up again. I'm going to say a concluding prayer. Well, Lord, I, I, I ask that we pray with Lear. We've taken too little care of this. Help us, Lord, to identify with the wretches of the world. Help us to be instruments of thy peace and healing. Help us to have the courage to face a transformation that is needed in our own lives. And we are so grateful, Lord, for the great blessings and the grace and the tenderness and kindness that you've shown us along the way. That indeed we are pilgrims. We are going to a city not made by hands, but by thee. This I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. To audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.